So a Republican president is elected who many say isn't qualified for the job. He's not qualified, like not at all. That's how people are talking. He's maybe best known to most people as a celebrity. He's always been considered an outsider, and and now he's this celebrity president. He's widely regarded as having this sort of toxic mixture of, of ignorance, but then the lack of curiosity to fix it. He's notoriously uninterested in, in details, in, in learning, but he's damn sure a hardliner on the things he believes. And many worry about the racialized politics that he'd, he'd really relied on to energize his base on the campaign trail. Democrats and, and even many Republicans just can't believe he's been elected. And on top of that, a, a foreign government believed to be an enemy of the United States is influential in delivering him to the White House. I'm describing Ronald Reagan, a former movie star, this sort of B-list celebrity who, who many saw as having a, a real shocking lack of experience for the job. And this is despite his having been governor, but, but people in both parties were like, this guy's not ready. This guy's not ready for prime time. He doesn't know enough. He's not qualified. And you have to be, you have to know enough and want to know enough to be president of the United States. The parallels to the Trump victory really are pretty remarkable. His election was a shock to the system, a shock to the political system, even to the Republican Party itself. And like Trump, Reagan's election was even due in part to a foreign government considered to be an enemy who'd, who'd sort of put their thumb on the scale and exerted a real clear preference for who they wanted. Just like Russia working to elect Trump, the nation of Iran in 1980 kept 52 American hostages. They kept them in captivity until the literal moment that Reagan was inaugurated, which just fucked Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was running for his second term in 1980, and for the last year of that first term, in fact, for 444 days, Iran had kept these hostages, 52 hostages. And then they released them, I shit you not, immediately after Reagan recites the oath of office, like mere seconds after Reagan is officially president. Iran was not being subtle. They preferred this, this Republican celebrity president to a Democrat, just as Russia proved with Trump. And both Reagan and Trump had, like I said, they had relied on this racialized campaign rhetoric. They used it to energize broad swaths of white folks. Reagan was the victory of that Southern strategy that I touched on in season one. And Trump is that strategy matured even further. Both are descendants of the racist politician George Wallace from season one. And both Reagan and Trump brought this real dangerous combination to the White House. A marked disinterest in details. A real unwillingness to learn but combined with these hard-line positions, these almost sort of religious beliefs. And what happens when you have hard-line, hard-core positions, again, like religious beliefs, but you don't pay m much attention to the facts, you don't, you don't 
care to learn any more than you already know, well, in that case, you end up getting some real cowboy shit in the government. And in the case of Reagan, we can look at the Iran-Contra affair, which is going to be the subject of this season two of The Crux. Iran-Contra was this deployment of like a, like a shadow CIA to do things that Congress wouldn't let Reagan do. Something that voters didn't want. He needed to get around democracy, in other words. He wanted more power than he was granted, like Trump. He and his hardliners placed, again, it's like a religious belief they had in in capitalism and empire. They placed that above everything, above democracy, and above the life and death of, of millions in the Middle East and Central America and in the American inner city. We can only imagine what Trump is capable of, but Reagan's crimes give us at least a glimpse. So this season is, is something of a warning, I guess. If, if you're wondering what sort of leeway President Trump has to do just insane shit and not face responsibility, look no further than Reagan and Iran-Contra. Welcome back for season two of The Crux. Real quick, before I get going, I just wanted to let y'all know about the website and the Facebook page. That's where I'll be giving y'all, you know, additional information, um, music, and and stuff like that that didn't make it into the episodes themselves. So that's thecruxpodcast.com and the Crux Podcast on Facebook. No spaces, just the Crux Podcast. And please support the Crux on Patreon if you're able to. Um, the Crux is free, but it's not free to make. And we got little baby crux on the way, so any support you can give would be so, so appreciated. Thank you so much. So I wanted to have episode one to y'all much, much earlier than now. Um, I had intended to be well underway in season two by the time that President Clinton got inaugurated. And um, and that's, that's not happening. Um, I'd been hard at work leading up to the election. Um, September and October, early November, I was getting all my little books together and, and doing my reading. And then the election happened. And um, and like nothing made sense. <laughs> and like nothing at all made sense. And I was like, fuck a podcast. You know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't know what end was up. It was like the floor had fallen out from underneath us. And so it took me a little while to figure out the story that I wanted to tell because the story I thought I'd be telling only made sense with a Clinton presidency. That's what I thought. And and I, like pretty much everybody else, hadn't considered, like actually considered, the likelihood of a, of a President Trump. But neither were folks prepared for a Reagan presidency in 1981. No one knew how reckless and how criminal a White House could be. I mean, we'd seen Watergate, right, which was wild illegal, of course. But but Watergate was K 
campaign crime, right? I mean, for all the for all the talk of, of Watergate, you know, we name everything gate. Anything that happens is something gate, right? Watergate is like the, the, the crime of all crimes, right? But Richard Nixon was spying on the Democrats. That's sort of the long and short of it. And he tried to cover it up. It was criminal, no doubt. But it was... It was election crime. It was, it was political elites spying on other political elites. Here's the thing. No one died. No one died in Watergate. And Iran-Contra made Watergate look like political jaywalking, like a, like a parking ticket. Here come the drums. Public Enemy's Chuck D., one of my favorite rappers, famously called rap music Black America's CNN. Rap music has essentially always been a forum for the discussion of, of issues facing rappers and fans. And you can find all manner of positions discussed on race and gender and war and peace and crime and economics and, and all of that. But if there's anything that's been reported on by hip hop with like unanimity, like across the board agreement, it's President Ronald Reagan's destructive effect on black America both back during his administration all the way to the present. The story keeps being told in hip-hop because the effects are still with us. It's still at work. It starts with Reaganomics, or trickle-down economics, which is largely, if I can boil it way down, a system of tax breaks on the wealthy and cuts in assistance and help for for poor folks, and and really the rest of us. It's more or less a belief that poor folks had it too easy and the rich had it too hard. And Reagan began making that belief into policy. And those economics of Reagan, Reaganomics, has been addressed by rappers in in a number of different ways over the years. It's been helpful to to try to understand what happened, but especially for me by by guys like Killer Mike and Jay-Z. And Jay-Z, then just young Sean Carter, growing up in the the Reagan era, was one of millions who, who were now in conditions even more desperate than before. So if we can rewind really quickly to season one, Martin Luther King's assassination combined with the government's war on the Black Panthers and and others in the movement, effectively eliminated the chance for black folks to finally, finally just get caught up economically. But then Reagan initiates this idea that, that, that despite this, despite not ever having been given a chance to be just caught up, poor and working class folks have it too easy. And we have to start rolling back assistance now. And this lands most squarely on black folks who are already way behind everybody else. They haven't been given a, a chance to catch up. And, and now Reagan is, is sort of kicking out the ladder. He says, you know, we're, we're not going to have as much money now, right? Because we're slashing taxes on the wealthy, on the 1%. So we have to cut somewhere. And since the country was still hella racist in 1980, Reagan would concoct these these notions of, of black folks, especially black women, who were like bilking the welfare system. We can't have welfare because because these these boogeymen, these so-called welfare queens, who were never described as black, but everybody knew what he was saying. It was these black folks who were just milking the system. 
So not only are folks now in a desperate economic condition, more or less left behind by this new ideology of Reaganomics in Washington, but now this cheap drug comes onto the scene, crack cocaine, and it starts just ravaging communities. It's like a bomb that goes off in, in like every major American city. But instead of approaching it as a public health crisis, like you see with white drugs, Reagan and his justice system approach it with militarized police. They start ramping up the war on drugs. It's not a public health crisis. It's a war. And they start building out the vast prison system to warehouse these new black criminals. Start warehousing black bodies. If you want to know more about this, definitely check out Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. It's a really, really great, really well-researched account of this history. But so all of this is going down, from Reagan all the way down, and at sort of street level, all these cops and their departments, not all, I mean not all, but many cops and their departments are out there working on the assumption of black guilt. The assumption of guilt, especially of black men. That's, of course, N.W.A. from 1988. It's the last year of Reagan's tenure when that song comes out. And they're expressing that that fear and anger of Reagan-era black men in Los Angeles, which was the epicenter of the crack crisis. L.A. is where it started and probably where it was the worst. But we can go all the way across the country to Atlanta to hear Killer Mike give a different perspective or another perspective. Killer Mike songs Reagan is a, is a crowd favorite, and it's the searing critique of Reagan's effect on America, and especially on Killer Mike's world. Mike was younger than the guys in N.W.A., as he says in Reagan, 11 or 12 at the end of the Reagan era. Quote, old enough to know that the shit had changed forever. They declared the war on drugs, like a war on terror. But what it really did was let the police terrorize whoever. But mostly black boys, but they would call us niggas. And lay us on our belly while they fingers on their triggers. But thanks to Reaganomics, prison turned to profits. Because free labor's the cornerstone of U.S. The next generation of hip-hop continues the critique that we saw from N.W.A. in the 80s and then Killer Mike more than 20 years later. L.A.'s Kendrick Lamar was born in 1987, again, a year before Reagan left office. And his album, Section 80, is about those 80s babies. It's, Section 80 is sort of a play on, on Section 8, like Section 8 housing, and Section 80, like the 80s. And it's all about those 80s babies born into an America that, that Reagan had irreparably damaged, according to the album. Reagan is mentioned throughout the album. He's everywhere. He... he he sort of looms over everything. But to get at the most damning and the most ubiquitous charge against Reagan, and what will become the focal point now for season two, let's turn to Jay-Z, as I want to do. <laughs> let's turn to Hove, who found himself providing for himself and his family as a crack dealer in a community ravaged by Reagan. What Jay-Z describes as the economic and, and social conditions created by Reagan's policies are enough, there, that's enough for Hove to hold the president in contempt. But then there's the shocking charge, which is what I'm going to look at. 
the shocking charge that Reagan and his men presided over an insanely illegal criminal syndicate that trafficked innumerable, literally uncountable tons of cocaine into the American city at the height of the crack crisis. It was jet fuel on a fire. Jay-Z levels probably the most damning charge you can make against a president. That Reagan actively allowed widespread injury on his own people, on the American people. That Reagan, in effect, provided the cocaine that Jay-Z sold. That the poison of crack wouldn't have been here in the first place without the -the off-the-charts criminality by Reagan and his men. That is Jay-Z's charge. Jay is very clear. Can't you tell that I came from the dope game? Blame Reagan for making me to a monster. Blame Oliver North and I ran Contra. I ran contraband that they sponsored. Before this rhyme and stuff, we wasn't concert. Jay-Z then repeats the charge even more aggressively. Actually, way more aggressively. In another song, where he goes so far as to even implicitly equate Ronald Reagan and Osama bin Laden. In a song called Beware, Jay raps that Bin Laden got Manhattan to blow, that is 9-11, while Reagan got Manhattan to blow. Blow, of course, being slang for cocaine. The 1980s, the 80s of Reagan, are pivotal in hip-hop's telling of history. Reagan may stand as, as some sort of hero to many, especially for white conservatives, but for Kendrick Lamar and Jay-Z and Kanye West and Killer Mike and Pusha T and Mos Def and KRS-One and Zach Del- so many others. For them, America changed with the election of the celebrity president with a reckless cowboy mentality. In this season, I'm going to try to unpack this really dense and, and complicated Iran-Contra affair of Reagan's. Both the Iran part and the Contra part. But what I'm most interested in getting to the bottom of is the American part. The allegations that come from basically all of hip-hop. It's always referred to as Iran-Contra with only two components. But what I'm looking at is whether it's instead a triangle. Three parts. The Iran-Contra cocaine affair. But did Reagan do it? You know, did Reagan, did he actually do it? Did the U.S. president preside over the sale of uncountable tons of cocaine at the height of the crack crisis while also accelerating the drug war and racializing the drug war so that crack sales, crack use, crack anything was just filling the prisons with black Americans? It's October 1986, and a rap group called Run DMC is on the biggest hip-hop tour yet for what was then still a very young art form. And in the course of a month in late 1986, three events, two big and one small, are going to reveal this truly insane web of criminality with the White House at the center. The first, on October 5th, 1986, 
A plane carrying an illegal arms shipment to guerrilla fighters is shot down over Nicaragua. And the only guy that survives is this CIA guy, who then reveals that he was working with other CIA assets to conduct an illegal war for Ronald Reagan, which no one knew was happening. Now, that's the Contra part. Contras were this guerrilla sort of terrorist army that was created, funded, and trained by the CIA. The second thing happens just a few weeks later, on November 3rd. A Lebanese paper reveals that Reagan was, on the low, trading arms for hostages with a nation that had been recently named as a state sponsor of terrorism. He was selling arms to terrorists, essentially. That's the Iran part. But then, in between, on October 27th, there's this massive drug raid that's about to go down in south-central Los Angeles, which, again, is sort of the, the, heart, the epicenter of the crack crisis. And this raid focuses on this Nicaraguan drug ring, this massive operation. After a month-long investigation, now we have L.A. police and sheriff department officers, the DEA, the ATF, the IRS, and other police and sheriff officers from, from other surrounding counties and towns. They're ready to pull the trigger. And they're ready to raid this more than 100-man operation that was described by the officer in charge of the raid as a group that was funneling the profits of their narcotics trafficking to the CIA's group in Central America, the Contras. Their drug profits were going to the CIA's army. But unlike the plane that was shot down in Nicaragua and the revelation that Reagan was selling arms to the Iranians, this wouldn't be making the news. Can you believe this ball game of shame? Most of America was talking about Game 7 of the World Series. It'd be airing that night. It would become one of the highest-rated sporting events in American history. Behind the bag! It gets through Buckner! Here comes Knight and the Mets win it! But that morning, just as the sun was rising on October 27th, L.A. police, detectives, DEA, a full seven divisions of men were in their positions for a simultaneous raid on 14 locations in and around Los Angeles. They were going to stop this insanely powerful drug ring whose profits, the lead officer said, were being sent to the CIA's army in Central America. And like, poof, there's nothing. They find nothing. Each location is described as scrubbed clean. The officers are shocked. They were fairly certain as to what they'd find when they filed for the warrant on October 23rd. But four days later, on the day of the raid, there is nothing. One officer reported that his group found a safe left open and empty when they got there. It had a garden hose running into it, as though it had been literally washed out, scrubbed clean. Lieutenant Mike Fossey said, quote, the word among the investigators was that the operation had been compromised. Snitched off, he said, by some agency back east, back in Washington. Another officer on the raid, L.A. Sheriff Deputy Richard Love, said it was, quote, mutually agreed upon between narcotics investigators that the suspects had been tipped off. Yet another officer on the raid Narcotics detective Jerry Gazetta was suspicious because of like the remarkable success 
they'd had in previous raids using the same informants they used for this raid. They had these, like, ace confidential informants. And they were batting a thousand. And they had these Nicaraguans dead to rights. And suddenly, these known drug traffickers are squeaky clean. They found nothing from known drug traffickers. The only difference with this raid, they said, is that they'd let Washington know what they were going to do. Blame Oliver Dorf. Blame Reagan. 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 Blame Oliver Dorf. Blame Reagan.